Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Uh, We're in the midst of a message series on Mark. We're going through the story of Jesus um, and just as kind of a way of recap, Mark is, is very likely the earliest gospel written. It has a lot of speed. It's, it's hasty. It kind of jumps, run-on sentences. It's a lot of driving action. Um, and it would have been written at a time where the tensions between the Jewish people, which were a small subsect of this larger Roman Empire, were really escalating. And the Jews were leading uh, the first Jewish war would have taken place and around 68, where they led a rebellion against the Romans, were actually quite successful early on, killed hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers, until ultimately Rome sends the totality of their power, wipes out the Jews that were in combat there, and destroys the temple, which would have been the center of the Jewish religious, personal, social life. Would have been a cataclysmic event, and Mark is being written as the tensions are rising here. So it's another way of understanding that both when Jesus was around and when Mark is written, we're really highlighting tensions between large systems of power and what it feels like to be excluded from them. And so um, here's my invitation as we read through this. And this is something that has helped me a lot in reading the Bible and helped me interpret the world that we live in now. Um, Every story of Jesus, everything he says should be understood in the light of, after three short years, they kill him. So the Jewish religious system triggers the large military superpower Roman system to exterminate Jesus because he is such a threat. So a lot of times we grow up with a flowing hair Scandinavian Jesus who's walking amongst the children in very white, clean linen robes. And he's saying, come to me, my loved ones. And this is the ministry of Jesus. And we're like, yeah, those monsters killed him. No, that's not what happened. It's not that Jesus wasn't loving, he was loving. But he directed harsh criticism of the religious systems and of the larger systems that were in place that were excluding people. He threatened each and every one of those systems to the extent that they needed to kill him. If we don't understand that about Jesus then what we do in gathering around these stories of Jesus is insulate ourselves from understanding really hard truths in our world today. This is uh, something even more recently, and I know, I mean, it's not even terribly topical now, um, but if you have any strong feelings, let's talk. I think that's great. If Colin Kaepernick and his kneeling is more offensive to you than Jesus Christ, then you don't understand Jesus Christ. So we, we, by understanding, oh, Jesus was this loving person that flowed, and then we see outrage in the world today, and you're like, yeah, but that is really wrong and awful. That's a functional misunderstanding of what Jesus was doing. And unless we understand that, we are not equipped to understand our world today and to say, what's happening here? What are some of the deeper narratives and stories? Okay? So we're going to be looking in Mark 7, understanding Jesus is ticking people off. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and some of the disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't you disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but with their hearts are far from me. They worship in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Pausing there, what I love about Jesus' response is you go, where's the middle part of that argument? We really went from zero to 60. Why don't you guys wash your hands? You know what, Isaiah was right. You are a brood of vipers and you are awful hypocrites. And we're like, whoa, what is happening here? All right, a couple of things. This religious system that they're, they're in is very much about washing their hands and clean, and a lot of it has to do with dietary laws. This is what has set apart the Jewish people from very early on and defined their religious social world. So to not ceremonially wash your hands was a violation of being Jewish, and the way in which you knew that you were right in the community and right with God is if you had followed the law, the Torah. This is what we still have in, in the what we would call the the First Testament. So, when you see the disciples are eating and they have not washed their hands, they are becoming ceremonially unclean. The only way to become clean again is to offer sacrifices at the temple, and to offer sacrifices at the temple is a financial endeavor. You have to pay money for the animals that you are sacrificing. And one of the things that's really beautiful about this earliest Jewish system is they had um, plans and contingencies for people who were not wealthy. So they said, you would offer a lamb, you would offer a ram, and if you couldn't afford that, then you would offer a pigeon. And the idea is that these should be easy to find and plentiful so that everyone can become ceremonially clean, which wasn't so much about that, but we could be back in relationship with each other and we know who we are in relationship with God. If this seems kind of archaic, barbaric, I absolutely understand. But I would say that this system is light years ahead of a system that says the gods are in control of everything and we have no idea where we stand in relationship to the gods ever. So for this Jewish system to be birthed out of that place where the gods are, have all the power and they are not interested in disclosing any information where you would do sacrifices and sacrifices, and this would ultimately even escalate in different places to the sacrifice of your own child. You would kill your child to appease the gods, to get the rains to come, to get the crops to grow. To have a clear system where you understand who you are is huge, which should help reframe that awful story of Abraham and Isaac. That this was putting to an end this idea that the Jewish people would ever sacrifice their own children absolutely abhorrent in the sight of God because God has provided another way. Okay? A little bit of history. What has happened during this time is these systems and the Pharisees are the keepers of the law. They're kind of like the mall cops for God. And they're going around on their Segway scooters mandating who's in and who's not. And the way that they hold this is they say, these were the original laws but we've created four to 500 laws around the Ten Commandments to make sure you never even get close to breaking those laws. And we're going to enforce those laws, and by enforcing those laws, we're going to keep our religious identity intact. Now, Jesus does not care. 
He does not care about this system, not because he doesn't care about connections to God, but because he doesn't care about the way it is being used to exclude people, primarily on the status of wealth. And we see later in the story of Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple. It's because they had jacked up the pigeon rates through the roof to make sure that there are some people that could never become ritualistically clean. They could never become integrated into the Jewish society, which is why it is so shocking when it says Jesus eats with sinners. It doesn't mean people who did something wrong. That's everybody. It means the people that were still identified as a sinner because they had not become ritualistically clean again. Now, Jesus has been dismantling this system from the beginning. One of my favorite little tidbits is the first miracle Jesus does is turns water into wine. And even non-religious people can agree, that's a great miracle. So, when Jesus turns water into wine, you're like, that's kind of weird. Because if you read the story, the people are already a little trashed. They've had plenty of wine. And they go, whoa, they brought out the good wine at the end of the party. Normally, that's where they let the bad wine come out. What did Jesus make the wine out of? He took the ritualistic cleansing water cisterns and he turned that water into wine. So he was making sure that no one could become ritualistically cleaned at this party because the celebration was more important. Again, everything through the lens of they kill the man at the end. Everything through the end of he is disrupting the system. Jesus is unafraid to stand in positions of power and to challenge them if he feels that they are exclusionary. Now, in this, period, in this uh, thing, he quotes Isaiah, which again is very much speaking to the language of the Pharisees. Their identity is built at knowing the scriptures better than anybody else. So if you really want to get at them, using their most prized possession, their center of power against them is a pretty good way of doing it. And he quotes Isaiah 29 verses 13 and 14. I want to look at those quickly. Then Isaiah is a prophet. He's speaking to the Israelite people to saying, these are the ways where you've forgotten who you are and your identity. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. This is also a helpful framing when we think of Jesus' miraculous acts. Jesus is doing wonder after wonder to destroy their systems, their understanding of the world, the way in which they framed how God works and how the world works, Jesus' miraculous actions, healing the leper. Lepers shouldn't be able to be healed like that. Restoring the sight of the blind, making the lame to walk. That is, Jesus feeds the 4,000, which comes immediately after that. Side note on that, that 4,000 people is just the count of the men, because patriarchy. So it's likely, much larger, more, more likely, eight to 10,000 people are there that Jesus is feeding with a couple of loaves and fish. And they have no ability to ritualistically cleanse themselves before eating that meal. And Jews are eating with Gentiles, which is also forbidden. And if you read through Acts, this becomes a huge conflict that gets rolled out with all the disciples. Again, everything through the lens of he's ticking people off and they're going to kill him at the end. Why is Jesus doing this? Is he just really interested in sticking it to the man? 
Does he have like some Batman-esque trauma deep in his past? Like what is driving Jesus' antagonistic actions towards them? I think we see in verses 8 through 15 of Mark 7. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your tradition, our own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Stop there for a second, because that can be a little bit confusing. It should be. There's not a lot of depth there. And even our historical understanding of what things are Corbin is spotty at best. The best we can recreate is what this means is that the whole temple system was an economic system. So the priestly class of people, people like me, lived off of the generosity of the rest of the Jewish people. And to be able to survive, to be able to to live there, people would give money, would give their resources, and a huge way that they would get it is they would get wills. Or when people would die, they would give their possessions to the church, uh, to the temple. So to be able to do that, sometimes people in their advanced age would dedicate these materials are going to be given to the church. We are, this is where we are willing it. And there appears to be, when these things are called Corbin, that means holy, dedicated to the temple, that they would no longer give the people access to use them or receive any benefit or wealth from them. What was functionally happening was elder abuse. People would become older, not able to work within the community, They would dedicate certain things to the temple and they wouldn't let them have access to it uh, because it was now holy. This was now dedicated to God. What is Jesus saying? You've missed the plot. You've lost the whole thing. You're following the letter of the law, but you're such in clear violation of what Moses said. Again, speaking their language, this is their center of power, who Moses is. He's saying, you've built your whole life on knowing Moses, and you don't know Moses at all. You are harming and abusing people. And this is what is fascinating about Jesus. Christian theology says Jesus is who? God. The most powerful being in the universe. And Jesus is God incarnate, which means God put on flesh. So within Christian theology, Jesus is the most powerful being to ever walk the earth. And whose story is Jesus interested in telling? The marginalized, the oppressed, the forgotten. Jesus came to earth and his message is centered here on elder abuse. Horrible that it's happening, beautiful that that is the God that we worship. And when we see religious systems that are not centered on these stories, we know that there is yet another problem. That maybe our religious systems have become reoriented, they become re-centered on something other than what Jesus was actually doing. Let's continue on the last three verses. Jesus says, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Jesus, and he does this a lot, when he has these interactions with the Pharisees, he doesn't say, Hey, you know what? Let's take this conversation offline. 
Maybe just go to a little coffee shop over here and we can really hash through the theology. Almost every time there's a theological disagreement with Pharisees, Jesus starts raising his voice and starts calling the crowd to come closer. And in the gospel of Mark, the crowd, the Greek word for it is the oklos, which means this like huge pressing force. It's not like an orderly crowd of people. This is timely. It's a Black Friday like masquerading maraud into a store. That's the kind of crowd. And Jesus says, come near, you crowd. Come push in on these Pharisees. Let's really make sure that this is clear to everyone. You've tried to say that what is defiling a person is what you put into yourself, but you haven't paid any attention to the laws and the words and the framework that you're putting out into the world that is creating so much harm and excluding so many people unnecessarily. We are kicking off a season of Advent. And if you're not familiar with kind of church calendars and all of that, uh, it's not something that we, we follow to kind of stringently, but we certainly do want to acknowledge is that as we're in December, we are heading into the time of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. One of my favorite parts of Advent is this prayer of Mary after she finds that she is going to be given birth to Jesus. She's going to be giving birth to the Savior of the world. And Mary's Magnificat, which you can find in the Gospel, the first chapter of Luke, if we could go there. This is what Mary says. And in his mercy, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the song that Mary sings in celebration that this Savior is coming from me. And I think in Mark 7, we see another clear picture of how Jesus is fulfilling this good word. Jesus is uninterested in centering the story around those in positions of power. Jesus is not interested in making people that already have kind of systemic power more comfortable or by reaffirming their thoughts. Why? Because their wealth, their privilege, their esteem has come at the direct um, result of other people not having it. The priestly class, they have such highly elevated esteem because everybody else doesn't. Because they have to serve this system. And what's beautiful and disruptive about Jesus is Jesus does not care about their system because he's interested in what? The God of the universe and how God is inviting us to live and see one another. Again, one of the things that's so seemingly forgotten in Christian theology is if you worship one God, not a bunch of gods, if there is one God, then that means every single person comes from that God. Who's your enemy? Their only family. And systems that work on excluding some people while highly elevating others are in direct violation of this core understanding of who God is. So, so what? I mean, this might be interesting history for some of you. It might be very uninteresting history for others. But ultimately, we're going to end this in a little bit 
We're going to kind of get back in our cars or walk back to our houses. We're going to have like a whole week as planned for us in the beginning of December. So what do we do with this understanding of dietary laws back then? I think there's two questions that I want to leave you with because you know the answer of how God is speaking and moving in your world here and now. The first is this. What parts of exclusive systems do you love and do you hate? It's easy based on this framework to say, I hate all exclusive systems. But man, do I love some exclusive systems. I really, really enjoy walking into Costco and knowing not anyone can walk in here. Only my fellow Costcoites can walk in through these hallowed gates and into this land of plenty. I love knowing that not just anyone gets to use the restroom at Starbucks. You gotta buy something. You gotta ask the code. And there's ways in which my own comfort is prioritized over other people's humanity because I want and thrive off of some exclusive systems. You don't have the key to my house and that helps me sleep at night. And there are lots of exclusive systems that it's, it's fun and it's right and gosh, I mean, it's just intellectually superior to be like, I hate every single exclusive system. And yet our lives don't bear that reality out. And so we can protest border walls and exclusions of people, but all of us love and thrive off of some level of exclusions somewhere. So the importance there isn't to shame that part of ourselves, but to become aware of it. It's not to hate that part of ourselves, it's to see it. It's to say, oh, there it is. That's the part of me. And now get curious about it. Why do I want that? Is there a truth that I'm believing or is there a lie I'm believing at the core of this. A lot of times our love of exclusion is because it makes us safer when the reality is, no, it doesn't. But it creates a mental framework of safety that we're in love with. And when we, I become aware of that, then I can actually start dismantling some of these unnecessarily exclusive systems that aren't actually creating safety for anyone, much less safety for everyone. What part of exclusive systems do you love and what part of them do you hate? And the second question is, again, going back to Jesus and how disruptive Jesus is. What part of disruption do you love and what part of disruption do you hate? I not proudly will tell you, as I've started reading Jesus' life as this ultimate disruptor, I know more and more and more I would not want to hang out with Jesus. I would not want to be around Jesus at all. When we're at Thanksgiving and someone's in, I put the turkey in an hour ago, and like, no, you didn't. It was two hours ago. I'm like, I got to go outside right now. That's the level of disagreement I'm uncomfortable with. <laughs> Jesus was actively creating deep systemic levels of disagreement that would require the upturning of everything. I can't handle parking disputes. I love the idea of Jesus' disruption for the sake of the oppressed and the marginalized. Practically, it makes my skin crawl and I want to climb out of the room. So what parts of disruption do I love? I love that on the other side of disruption, we can see something we couldn't see before. 
I love on the other side of disruption, someone gets included that couldn't have been included before. I love that on the other side of disruption, someone gets to be seen that couldn't be seen before. If I can tap into that thing that I hate about it and that thing that I love about it, maybe when it's happening, I can say, why is this worth sitting through? And in sometimes, why is this worth creating? And so I, I want to give us a little bit of time to think. What parts of disruption do you love, do you hate? What parts of exclusion do you love and do you hate? And would you be able to see those and view those non-judgmentally? You don't have to eliminate some of those to become a better Christian, but you do have to identify them to be a more integrated human being, to be more aware of where they are working and how they are flowing in our lives. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to think through those two questions. I'm going to come up and close our time in prayer. God, I thank you that you came to this earth and God, your path of peace as the Prince of Peace that we celebrate this Christmas season was through disruption. God, it is through addressing and dismantling systems that exclude and prioritize some experiences over others. God, I pray that we can reclaim this word Christian from our culture that has meant so much about ideology and thoughts and words that you can assign to yourself. And God, we would reclaim it as a way of creating a system that helps everybody thrive. And God calls out the parts of our systems that only let some thrive and often at the expense of others. God, may you deepen and widen our appetite for disruption. Not for the sake of disruption or chaos, but God, for the sake of inclusion, for the sake of seeing the image of you that is planted in every single person we come in contact with. God, may we see you clearly for the disruptive force that you were so that, God, we don't lean out of the helpful disruptions that we need to initiate, participate, and sustain in our world today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.